often play a game with my son where I'll send him a picture and say, where is it? And he usually knows. <laughs> and he sends me one back and I have no idea. Um, that's a picture I took some years ago. I went on long service leave and I did uh, what every teenager longs to do but doesn't have the money. But I actually had the money and could do it. And that was I bought myself a little camper van and I travelled up the north coast. Got as far as the Sundays. I stayed where I wanted to and I stayed as long as I liked and then I'd just move on to the next part. Uh, I went to Byron Bay and all those sorts of places. This is Noosa on the headland there, um, up to 1770, uh, and then all the way to the Whitsunday Islands and back again. Best part of the trip? Coming home. I got homesick. I got about three weeks in and I had this feeling in my stomach and I thought, what's that? I haven't eaten anything bad. And then I realised after a while I was really missing uh, my family and uh, just home. So I enjoyed it, but coming home was the best part. It's the same feeling when you're travelling and you're coming back from overseas. Um, you get on that Qantas plane and suddenly you feel home. It's true. There's accents you can actually understand. And uh, they tell me, I haven't experienced this yet, but I'm sure some of the others here could tell me this, when you're coming through the heads uh, on a cruise ship and you're seeing Sydney in that early morning light, it's like coming home. Well, for the Jew in the time of Jesus... Uh, seeing Jerusalem at the end of the Passover pilgrimage was like that. Uh, looking down at the city from the path leading down the Mount of Olives, gazing at the temple could be an overwhelming sight. One of Jesus' contemporaries, a writer that we don't know of, but we've got his record, wrote these words. The temple itself was a complex of buildings with the actual temple itself to the right of centre. It crowned Jerusalem, which itself crowned a hilltop. So the temple, much of its exterior plated with gold and silver and the rest dazzling white marble, looked from a distance like a snow-capped peak with the sun reflected off it. No wonder people um, enjoyed coming back to Jerusalem. Well, that's the sight that lay before Jesus as he came in on that Palm Sunday uh, with the pilgrim crowds making their way down the hill to celebrate the Passover feast. This is the chosen one. This is the one God had said at his baptism. This is my son whom I am well pleased. This is the one that God had said in the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. This is the chosen one. Uh, The one the prophet spoke about as the successor to David. He's now coming home, coming to Jerusalem to claim his kingship. But unlike any other king in history, his crown would be a crown of thorns and his throne a rough wooden cross. Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem marks the beginning of another new section in Mark's Gospel. All the events from now on take place in and around Jerusalem. Jesus will not leave Jerusalem now. And the next couple of days are recorded in some detail about what Jesus did there. In chapters 11 and 12, the issue is faith. What does real faith look like? Uh, what kind of faith is, people, uh, is God looking for in God's people? This morning we're going to touch on three incidents in a little detail and then a couple of others in less detail and uh, three incidents that take place as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. In the previous chapter, Jesus has said for the third time, uh, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's the name Jesus used to name himself, who he was, the Son of Man will be betrayed. He goes on to say that they'll mock him and they'll kill him. But apparently the disciples were tuned out. 
they were too busy working out who was going to sit at his left and right hand in heaven to be understanding what Jesus was talking about. They were arguing amongst themselves. They buried their head in the sand. They just didn't want to know the fact that this king would suffer. That wasn't on their agenda. Now Jesus reaches the very edge of the city and the disciples are on edge as well. What will he do, they think? What's he going to say? Well, you probably know the story well and we just read it. Jesus gets on an ass and he rides into the city as the crowd sing and cheer and lay down their clothes and wave the palm branches And like so many episodes in Jesus' life, the people's expectations are in stark contrast to the reality of what's actually happening. As a conquering king, Jesus should have been coming in on a a white horse with with a crowd of soldiers behind him. But he arrives on the back of a donkey. Anyone ever ridden on a donkey? Anyone seen people? Oh, Jeff, you've ridden on a donkey. We We should have had some pictures up here of Jeff on the donkey. It's very strange when people ride on a donkey. It's very unhorse-like. Uh, donkeys look very funny, especially when they're running. There's a little bit in 2 Samuel where uh, a group of people escaped the city riding on donkeys. And I saw a film about it and I couldn't stop laughing. It was hilarious. Uh, donkeys are not very regal animals. And yet Jesus comes in riding on the back of an ass. A popular psalm at the time put the people's expectations of the Messiah like this. Again, this is in, in the, uh, the book of Psalms. It's just a psalm that was floating around at the time. And it said this, Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them their king, the son of David, and gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations and trample her down to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from inheritance. He shall destroy the pride of sinners as a potter's vessel. With a rod of iron he shall break in pieces all his substance. He shall destroy the godless nations with the word of his mouth. This is their expectations of this coming king. They were looking for a king to shatter and smash and break and destroy. And Jesus comes in on a donkey. Why? Because the animal characterised the type of king that he was. Not by power, but by personal sacrifice. Not by arrogance, but by humility. Not by greed and gain, but by self-denial and suffering. And so with shouts of Hosanna, which means save us, ringing in his ears, Jesus rides into town. Mark records he stands and has a good look around. He takes it all in. And then he goes back to Bethany for the night. Did you notice in this little episode that despite their obvious enthusiasm, the crowd hasn't got a clue? They, They have no idea who Jesus really is. Being enthusiastic, being swept up in the tide of emotion doesn't necessarily mean you're a follower of Christ. I see it at school when kids go on a camp and the gospel's presented to them there and they come back and they're bubbling some of them. They're really keen for a week and then lukewarm for a few more. Then the experience fades. They don't want to talk about spiritual things anymore. Enthusiasm is not the benchmark of being a Christian. It's a byproduct, but it's not the telltale truth of who you are. Well, the next day, Jesus gets up and he comes back into town. He heads straight for the temple. And we read these verses in chapters 11, verses 15 and 16. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area 
and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Well, why is Jesus so outraged? Why is he so upset about this? I think to put it in context, we need to get a full picture of, the, of what the temple looks like. This is um, a picture of the temple. It's a model that's in Jerusalem and people often take pictures of this to show what the temple looked like. I couldn't get it all in the shot. Um, but this is the third temple that has been built. David had the idea. He couldn't build it because he was a man of war and God wouldn't allow him. Solomon built the first temple. It was destroyed. A second was destroyed. Herod the Great uh, built this temple. And uh, it was a very large temple set on a hill and a huge slab of stone, massive pillars lining the outer walls. And inside the temple were a series of courts, which you can just see there. Uh, Here's a diagram of what it looked like. You can see there are outer courts and inner courts. And each time you move from court to court, you go up a set of stairs. And there's a sign saying you can't go any further if you're a certain sort of person. So there's some sort of discrimination going on here. The outer court is the court of the Gentiles. This is a place where those who are coming for the Passover feast could worship. If you were a non-Jew, you couldn't go to the next court, which was the court of the women. And then the court of the Israelite men. Then the priest court, which contained in the middle there the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Well, Jesus enters the outward court, the court of the Gentiles. The only place where the people who'd come from other nations could actually worship God. And it looked like Camden Show. I went down to Camden Show last night. It looked like Camden Show. Animals everywhere. Sheep, goats, birds, plus the rattle of coins as money changed hands. There was a continuous stream of traffic moving through this court, uh, including merchants with camels, because there was a shortcut um, from outwards, uh, outside the, the city, through the court of the Gentiles into the inner city itself. Uh, The reason for this chaotic mess, well, particularly at this time, was a celebration of the Passover feast. And to celebrate the feast, one of the things you did was that you brought a spotless animal with you to sacrifice. Now, if you were coming from a distance, that would be pretty hard to keep it spotless. Uh, So you actually used to um, buy the animal at the temple markets. And that was okay. But when you got there, it was a bit like going to the cricket ground. You know, pie and chips, $12. Uh, The prices were overinflated. And the pilgrims had to pay a temple tax as well in Jewish currency. And again, the unsuspecting traveller was ripped off by the money exchanges. They fixed the scales. No wonder Jesus is upset and rightfully angry. And he starts to hurl things around. The temple was supposed to be a place where God met with his people. A place of worship. Jesus describes it as a bandit's lair. Jesus' anger makes the local authorities tremble. Once again, when evening comes, Jesus goes back home to stay with his friends a couple of kilometres away in the town of Bethany. Now, surrounding this scene, as was read for us, is a very strange episode of the fig tree that Jesus curses. Uh, Let's have a look. Uh, This first bit comes before uh, Jesus cleans out the temple. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find it, if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. 
Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. And then he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. And when he comes out the next morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus replies, have faith in God. Well, what's this all about? Uh, Even though we're told it's not the current season for figs, the leaves from a distance promise fruit. A bit like my passion fruit vine at home, which got leaves everywhere, but no fruit. And I keep on looking for the fruit, and I'm sure it's there somewhere, but I can't find it. Close inspection, uh, Jesus finds this, there's no fruit here. In the same way, just as the leaves should have signified the fruit, so the temple should have indicated the fruits of godly living. Jesus should have found justice and inner peace, but instead he found fraud and personal gain and injustice and outward show and pretense and all the wrong things. The fate of the fig tree was actually prophesying what would happen to Jerusalem sometime later. In AD 70, the Romans came and totally destroyed the temple and uh, Jerusalem and Israel ceased to exist. Well, here we are, three episodes of Jesus' life in the heart of enemy territory. The attack on the temple set the tone for a series of questions now that the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders ask, trying to trap Jesus Questions about paying taxes and who you're married to in the next life and what's the greatest commandment. And just before them all, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. And uh, the, the parable is a really obvious one about the tenants being the, the religious leaders and how when the sun comes, they kill him. And at the end of the parable, the chief priests note this. Uh, Mark writes, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders look for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken against them in this parable. But they were afraid, so they left him and went away. Well, I think what we can take home from the story this morning are three things. And I want to leave you with these three. Firstly, uh, we need to keep to the promises of God. Jesus condemns those who promise much, but where there is no fulfilment. The whole of Israel's history was one of promise. God made promises to Abraham of a land, a blessing, and being God's people living in the land. Uh, It was a preparation for the coming Messiah, but when he finally arrived, they missed him. They didn't even see him coming. They totally misunderstood who he was. They promised much, but in the end, there was only hostility and ignorance. Being the people of God is a great privilege, but it carries great responsibilities as well. Jesus tells us again and again to be distinctive like salt, to be a light, to let it shine, to show the fruits of love and obedience, to demonstrate our faith as real and genuine, not just a hollow sham. Remember Abraham's nephew, Lot? He was an heir to the promise too. When Abraham went up to a hill and said to Lot, Uh, here's the promised land, which would you like to choose? And Lot chose this portion, uh, leaving Abraham the rest. The portion that Lot chose was where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. And Lot settled in Sodom. And initially he's revolted by the conduct of the people there. But pretty soon Sodom gets into his soul. 
And though he lived there for years and became a leading voice in the city, uh, he had many opportunities to influence those around him. He did not do that. He did nothing to point his family towards God and his friends towards God. Lot's lifestyle did nothing to uh, loosen the culture's grip on his wife either. She left her heart in Sodom and couldn't resist turning around for one last look. And we remember what happened to her. See, Lot's folly was this. Although a believer, he lived as close to the world as he could, hanging on for it to dear life until the bitter end. Jesus says to us, be distinctive. Live out the promises. Don't, don't live on that edge there. Live out the promises of God and show to others that you are distinctively Christian. Secondly, and I do this with tongue-in-cheek this morning because I wrote this earlier, we need to do worship well. And particularly, I mean what we do in church. You know, we live in a, uh, a different culture from perhaps the culture we grew up with within church. Uh, when I was a young boy and I went to church, uh, I was in a choir and I was robed. And uh, I was told that when I went into church, I had to be very quiet. And I took that through with me into my adulthood. When you went in church, you were quiet. And the kids were quiet. That's not the way it is nowadays. And I think that's rightly so with the, the church that we have here. Uh, we have an informal style. But we need to do informal well. So if we're on the reading roster, I think we need to practice the reading. Like we've heard this morning. Uh, we need to set the reading in context to look at what goes before and what comes after so we can uh, say the words right. Musicians and prayers and service leaders, we need to keep up the standards, keep them high. Uh, it's very easy in a church like this with informality uh, to let us slip into the mediocre. Somehow we've got to do something between sloppy and slick and that middle area is where we need to aim. After attending church with his dad one Sunday morning, a boy went to bed and he prayed this prayer. Dear God, we have a great time in church today. I wish you'd have been there. I hope that uh, our children never pray a prayer like that. Finally, uh, in this uh, particular episode, uh, Jesus uh, rebukes religious fraud and he demands honesty. He wants inward change, not outward show. We can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He knows the state of our hearts. Speaking through the prophet Hosea, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God is not impressed by our outward show. Unless our heart is in the right place, it's all just an illusion. Apparently in some places in the Riviera, it's a status symbol to have your own yacht. If you can't have your own yacht, it's also a status symbol to have your own balcony on your flat as it faces the water. And if you haven't got a balcony, you actually paint one on to the flat. You paint it with pot plants. You might even put some clothes hanging up on a line to add a touch of reality. But pretense doesn't fool anyone. God is not fooled by ours. Real worship is not outward display. It's not what we do. It wells from the inside. It's released by the Spirit. It's a right response to a relationship, not a legalistic duty. And if we're not worshipping God with our hearts, then we're probably wasting our time. You know, at the end of this whole section, after all the questions have been asked and Jesus uh, deals with them expertly, once again he's in the temple. And he's sitting there and he's watching people put money into the treasury. 
And again, you know the story. The rich throw in large amounts and a young, sorry, probably an older lady comes along, a widow, and puts in two small copper coins. And Jesus highlights to his followers her response. He, he sort of sharpens the contrast between the sham righteousness of the religious leaders and the wholehearted devotion to God characterised by this woman. And Jesus is saying to her and to those watching and to us, this is what faith looks like. It's that wholehearted, inward devotion to God. Jesus came to town riding on an ass. He came as a king. He came to the temple expecting much but found very little. Our calling is to be holy, to pursue holiness as a lifestyle. Our renewal and change must come from the inside as Jesus works in our lives. We're to live with confidence that what God has begun in us will continue. He'll transform us until we see him face to face. Uh, my prayer is that God would do this in our church and might be reflected in our worship corporately and in our private worship as well. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this episode in Mark's Gospel that reminds us what faith looks like. We pray that we might be those who are people of faith and not those who lose it or just outwardly show it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.